Welcome to the Networking for the People podcast series. If you're looking for guidance on NFTs, you've come to the wrong place. But stick around anyway, as we figure out what our friends are up to, why they're doing what they do, and how they ended up getting there in the first place. I'm Robert. Welcome to NFTP. Today, we welcome Connor, gamer, puzzler, creator, technologist. Hailing from Yardley, Pennsylvania, he pivoted early in his college career at Pittsburgh to focus on applied mathematics and computer science. After Moving to New York City, he's gone through a couple of role changes in the finance, technology, and defense spaces, but throughout has focused on machine learning in his early career journey. Connor, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So to get us right into it, to kick things off, in your own words, who are you, where are you from, and what do you do? Such such an existential question, but... Uh... But as of right now, I guess, uh, pertaining to this show, uh, right now, I'm a machine learning engineer living in New York. I currently work at Meta, uh, brand new, so still figuring out what's going on with that. But uh, mostly just a guy trying to figure out how to live in New York, how to, how to work a new job, and how to balance all the stuff that goes along with that. Yeah, and, you know, I'm not someone that knows um, too much about the outskirts of the tri-state area. I believe Pennsylvania falls within that within that realm of uh, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. But yeah, Yardley is not something that I knew of uh, early on. So, so maybe that's somewhere we could start, I guess. I'm curious, you said, you know, you're in New York now. Um, what was that move like for you coming from um, where you were in Pennsylvania to, you know, the big apple, the big city? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you also shouldn't really know what Yardley is. It's a, it's a very small town, but I had a couple little layovers in between. So I went from Yardley to Pittsburgh, which is that small city vibe. And I moved to Philadelphia, which is kind of another level up. And then finally New York. So I kind of had a nice transition along the way. So it wasn't too bad of a culture shock. But I will say it, it's definitely fundamentally different than anywhere else I live. There's just always more going on. It's definitely pulled me out of my introvert bubble. I had to I had to build up the extra battery over, over the last couple of months. Uh, I, was go. Go, I was going home with social <laughs> headaches after four days of talking to people. So, you know, definitely an adjustment. So I had to do a little bit of research uh, and just found out that um, the founder of the town, William Yardley, came to America in the 17th century. So oh. quite, a, quite a while back uh, on a ship that was called Friends Adventure, which I thought that was a pretty funny name for, <laughs> for a boat. Yeah, Not exactly the... Uh, the the usual naming scheme for boats uh, these days yeah not the boldest not the boldest <laughs> right you know speaking to a friend's adventure let's call it um you talked about going through these different experiences leveling up each time to charge that social battery how do you feel that shift with the different people with the different environments has kind of propelled you and put you on your your engineering your software journey as it is now I think the cool thing is that there's good people everywhere. So I think I've been lucky enough that everywhere I've lived, I've, I've met some really amazing friends. From my childhood, I still have a group of like under 10 friends that I talk to every month. We, we get together every holiday. They're still my best friends forever, like all time. So I, I'm lucky enough to have those strong connections from my childhood. And then pretty much everywhere I've moved, I've always ended up finding really good people. So I mean, New York is no exception. There's just a lot more people. So, you know. Um, Statistically speaking, you're bound to find some people. <laughs> exactly. I, I will say the diversity in backgrounds and jobs and kind of like people will come from, what they're doing is definitely a lot stronger here. Um, most of the people I spent time with growing up or kind of places I moved were more centered on the stuff that I do. So most of my friends along the way were doing software, were doing engineering or stuff like that. And all of a sudden I moved here and it's just like, there's lawyers, there's 
writers, there's artists. It's just all, all of a sudden, you just, it's so exciting to like learn about different people's passions and you just find out about these jobs that you had no idea existed. So I'd say that's the only thing unique about here versus some other places is I guess, just there's so many people you're gonna run into so many people from different backgrounds. I actually, I love that as an example. I think that's something that I always think about when people ask about pivoting jobs, about even knowing that certain kinds of jobs exist is about talking with people that have like a passion that they've integrated into their work as the dominoes fall in a sense, that passion starts to become the work and then it overlaps. And hopefully it's not like a positive process from both perspectives. A hundred percent. And also talking to people from more creative backgrounds definitely gives you a little, a little bit of like, kind of reinvigorates a little bit of passion, you know, it makes you think about stuff that isn't just like immediate problem solving. And it kind of reminds you that like, you don't always need to just like fix the thing in front of you. You kind of meander a little bit, kind of like engage other parts of your brain. Because I, I will say there are some times in my life where I'm like, just have to fix the next thing, keep going. But you know, the, the, there is that other the other side of things that, that gets brought up when you have people from creative fields that I feel like, I don't know, engineering people should, should kind of tap into that a little more. Yeah, and I feel that is a really good parallel, maybe a really good segue to what you do now for work as a machine learning engineer. You've done this now for three, four years. Um, you started it, um, I imagine, in schooling and then chose to continue in machine learning now for, again, these couple of years in these different roles. I guess my first question, why? Is it just because it was the buzzword or a variety of other fact you know, factors that pulled you into this direction? So there's kind of like good interview answers and then there's like not good, like more, you know, <laughs> goofy answers, but it's always, it's always multifactorial, right? So. When I went to college, I, I started off being really interested in evolutionary biology. I had a really good experience in high school with, with the sciences, and I thought that was my passion. And then I, then I went to college and took a computer science class, kind of realized that that was really interesting. And then I kind of had this really manic weekend where I convinced myself that I could grow artificial life through evolution and simulation. I read like one paper on Jesus yeah, yeah. and I was like <laughs> far left of the Dunning-Kruger curve, you know, like I know all this, I'm gonna, I can totally do this. And of course, like figured out six hours later, that's like not gonna happen. But, but along that way, yeah. I, I started like reading papers about this stuff about genetic algorithms, mm -hmm. which is this one specific kind of, of machine learning optimization problem. And I realized that I could not read these papers. I had none of the background necessary. I was looking, I, I looked at a Sigma and I was like gone. You know what I mean? I was like, it's over. I, I can't handle this. Uh, um, so that was kind of motivation. That, that, that was your valley of despair moment. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. I didn't know anything. So I, I realized that there's this whole other world out there. And, and even the jobs I imagine myself doing in the sciences or in biology were actually computer science and math jobs. I just didn't realize. I, I didn't have the terminology going into college. I, I, I hadn't met anyone who had done these things before. So that kind of first two years of college was me figuring that out like what a real job was that makes perfect yeah. sense to me uh, it's something that we even talked about or like just before right getting to meet creative people that help you helps you take a step back and look at the exactly. bigger picture and like how do you bring in different pieces of data to find a solution that you normally wouldn't have exactly and the fact that most like modern jobs kind of fall on these intersections between fields like there's no such thing really as like a biology job, you know, like, like those are relatively rare. There's no such thing as, as a computer scientist in industry. Like, I mean, of course there's specific examples of a couple of these, but the vast majority of jobs 
kind of involve a bunch of different things. I mean, initially, I, I decided to, to major in math because I basically went through these papers. And also, I, <laughs> I did some uh, creative coursework accounting and figured I, I might be able to still graduate in four years. Um, turns out that that was my first uh, big error was I definitely could not. <laughs> um, I tried to take <laughs> and, uh, and yet you classes. chose and yet you chose math. So <laughs> exactly, I was I stuck it through though. I, I figured out that no, I could not take four hardcore math classes in one semester and survive. So that that was a <laughs> definitely a lesson. But yeah, and, and then along the way, I, I picked up this this random elective. It was called like it was called Big Ideas in Mathematics. And I had this really cool professor. His name is Dr. Wheeler. If you ever hear this, you're the man. And it was this project-based class where you could basically just uh, companies come in, they pitch a problem to the class, and then you form teams and basically try to do a relevant industry problem, mm -hmm. uh, which was a Perfect. oddly Love solid that. emulation of the work that people actually do. Um, I didn't realize at that point, but yeah, we, we had a company come in and pitch us a problem. That was when I started to actually have to read about machine learning and know what I was talking about to the slightest degree. And also <laughs> when I first discovered that 90% of machine learning is cleaning garbage data yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was, it was a really quick, uh, the honeymoon phase is over very quickly, is, is all I'm saying. But, but that was, um, that project was why I talked about my first interview. That's how I got my first job in, in the field. And the fact that I could point to presentations and actual code that I written was probably the most important thing. And even just the confidence to walk in and, and say, with just an undergrad degree, that before machine learning majors existed, that I think I could do that job. That was, that was, that was huge for me. So I think that was my first, first major step. I think at the core of how to evolve or be better in any type of role is knowing the kinds of questions to ask, right? So like at the most basic level, you're preoccupied with asking like, what does this mean? What is going on here? As you start to learn more about any particular field, you're asking like, how does that work? Um, you answer the what, now you figure out the how, and you're able to build those building blocks the big idea to pointing to your class, right? As you learn more and more, like the highest level of what you're now preoccupied with is asking like, why are we doing these things? Why is this helping drive the mission forward? Or why is this addressing a problem that we initially solved? So it's in an oversimplified view, those are like the three stages of the questions you're asking. And pointing to your even first example before where you started in, uh, in biology and how like there's no, one biology role that you do. As someone that works in biotech, I regularly interact with people that have studied biology. Their jobs aren't specific to biology anymore. Whether you're starting, mm -hmm. you know, studying cells or life cycles of cells, at the end of the day, you're looking at a bunch of data. You're probably coding up in Python and R, two very common mm -hmm. languages, you know, used within the field, very accessible, pointing to statistics. So now there's math involved and how do I look at my data and then how do I present it? So there's a lot of different pieces and elements along the way exactly as you, use it, as you described. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a great example. And I feel like biotech is that place where you're going to see that that hardcore overlap with 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 STEM math, you know, the, the, all the STEM, all, <laughs> all, all the STEM. in one place. Right? It's all, it's long <laughs> yeah. I want to point yeah. to one thing you mentioned, um, and I think this doesn't get enough attention. So unbeknownst to many, and I think this is just something that isn't talked about again as often, the average undergrad degree does not take four years to finish. Um, the number actually gets closer to five with each passing year in the last, let's say, decade or so. Um, and I think that happens partly to your point, there's more exposure to different kinds of jobs. The industries that were once just pillars are now more interconnected. Um, more electives make their way into the curriculum. 
you already told us about why you made the pivot from biology to mathematics, but what was kind of the sentiment that you felt, even though you did make that accounting mistake um, about needing to take the extra semester or so um, to finish? Because I know for me, like seeing friends doing much better in classes if I had to retake a class or two, and then I'm just like seeing everyone, you know, jump ahead. So I could definitely relate to that if, if you felt any any kind of way there. Oh, yeah, I, I was not very happy. <laughs> I, I, I was pretty upset about it. Um, it. It was a little strange coming out a year later than all my friends. Um, my, my last year, most of my friends graduated and actually left Pittsburgh. I, thank God, my one of my best childhood friends moved moved to Pittsburgh, and we lived together. So that was like my right. my saving grace socially. <laughs> so um, but exactly, exactly. But um, I w I wouldn't trade that year hanging out with him for anything. But <laughs> I, I will say it was a little bit disheartening. Um, the earlier in your career, the more one year feels like the end of the world. Yeah. If you have zero years of experience, one year of experience is is half the work of like your entire career to you. You know. So, so I will say that initially, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't too happy about it. But I mean, and now I can sit here and justify in hindsight that you know, oh, like it was the right thing to do. Um, I planned it all, but, but the truth is, I really didn't. Like, I mean, there was planning. There was like, I did have a plan. <laughs> I didn't know at the time it was the, the man plan. a plan. Um, Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and and much like your your anagram, you go backwards, you go forwards. Um, there's, there's something. There's some pun there. All right, but um, <laughs> but yeah. So um, you do have to just like look more forward, and it's good to live in the moment. And everything, but sometimes living the moment makes you feel behind, makes you feel disheartened um, if you're comparing yourself to others. But I, I don't know. At the end of the day, when you're even when you get, I'm only about four years in my career, and at this point, one year feels like nothing. But there is no difference seeing someone right now who has three years experience and five years experience. So if you end up going five years and you did it for the right reasons, you should definitely not be afraid of that. that, that that's my point. If I was to give advice to me a couple of years ago, it's like, just chill out, dude. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely hear that. I appreciate your kind of candidness about that um, and talking, talking me through that. Maybe to draw a parallel pivoting about not only like changing directions with your coursework, um, but now in your work as a machine learning engineer, you've pivoted from working in the finance space um, at Capital One and now to a more pure, I don't want to say pure software, but, uh, you know, as Oculus gets put into the mix of uh, the hardware element. Um, but pivoting from your work in the finance space to now in the, more in the software space, how did that pivot feel to you? Um, was it something you'd always wanted to do? It's hard to know what you want to do before you're doing it. And you can have like, you theorize, but until you're sitting there day to day, it's, it's pretty hard to understand what, what these systems are the like. The job description only gets you so far. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Until you're sitting in that chair, dealing with the same problem day in and day out, and, you know, <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I guess I would say Capital One was more similar to big tech than I thought it was going to be. Some of the problems were a little more opaque by the nature of it being a finance company. So um, just there's nothing to hold, right? A lot of the analytics problems are very, um, very ethereal, very like um, transforming metrics, basically. So if you're somebody who needs to like feel something at the end of your work or feel a product at the end, then that probably isn't the space to be in, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So and at the end of the day, I wasn't I wasn't doing financial analytics um, for the most part. I, I was doing just general modeling at the end of the day if you're modeling something the technologies aren't that fundamentally different depending where you are um i mean working at with that scale 
what was it was new for mm -hmm. me coming from I worked at Lockheed Martin for several years and and the data at Capital One is just a completely different right. um, magnitude being how many users they have and how much just the scale of financial data in general. <laughs> but I would say that the transition from then now to meta, I, I, I think is less less dramatic than you might think. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, you're still have a problem in front of you. You're working with a big code base and you have to fix it. So it's, you know, yeah, I, I don't think it was that, that rough of a transition. So far, I mean, I'm still new. So, so far. ask me again in a couple months, maybe I'll have a different story, but. The comparison that you draw, you know, you have big finance based the data sets, applying model to modeling techniques, similar modeling techniques are can be applied to your space now. When I was when I was actually doing a project in grad school, I was simulating how pressure in an operating room would drop um, when different doors in that operating room would open. So it's it's a normally pretty controlled operation. The building's management system does a really good job of equilibrating the pressure. Um, but we were taking real-time data within the room with little little pressure probe and seeing how you know the change in air uh, modified it. And I was looking for a good um, equation to fit you know very simple data set just like pressure points versus time. And I'm looking at it like I don't know a tangent curve sideways. I I'm trying to fit like some polynomial to it. I hear like chemistry professors are like don't fit a polynomial if you don't know your your order of error. <laughs> You're talking machine learning. Yeah. <laughs> that's all I do is make wild assumptions and exactly. Data, so. <laughs> uh, and not to digress too much, so, so I'll make my point. Um, one of my friends was was working um, in the bio labs, and he comes over and looks at it. He goes, "Oh, that's just a a four PL, a four parameter logistic curve." I'm like, "Of course." Of course it is. And he, he, he showed me what it looked like. He showed me the data set it applies to. And I was like, oh, this is actually a perfect way to explain the curve. Completely different data, but the same model applied and it worked really, it worked perfectly to be honest with you. No, that makes a ton of sense. That's a great analogy. At the end of the day, a lot of these, a lot of this data we're looking at has the same underlying principles, you know, that's, it's all signals <laughs> at the end of the day, right? More or less. And signals are pretty much the pretty similar everywhere. So, I mean, we, you could be doing that for, for operating rooms. We could send you to NASA. You could be doing that for, you know, uh, pressure chambers or something. And honestly, probably you might find exactly. it's not that different, right? At least I, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but. Probably not that much. Not that yeah, much. I think um, <laughs> at least trying to find a simple solution first is a very effective means of finding any solution at all. So I, I definitely agree with, with that point. So something that I've come to appreciate more these days and coming from newsletters that I see and read nearly on a daily basis is that data is beautiful. And not to sound too cliche, these are not my words. There's a really nice subreddit that is called Data is Beautiful, where people come together and present and share different ways that they visualize and look at data. And it's really, I think, underrated um, and we don't appreciate it as much. There's great graphics on Marvel revenue. There's really cool population statistics. Um, and it's usually brought up from the perspective of current events. So it really helps explain, even if you can't read the language, you can at least get a visual understanding of, of what's going on around you, of what's going on in the world. Is there anything that you've worked on, or even if it's not your own project, where you've said, wow, that's a really cool way of presenting data or um, looking at data, and anything that comes to mind? I've seen friends over the years make some really amazing graphics to represent data, to to people um I, that is not a particularly solid skill of mine but but one thing that i have seen um is this method called tsne t-s-n-e it's this method to visualize high dimensional data sets 
uh, which is something that's super opaque usually, right? So if you're trying mm -hmm. to find relationships between a data set and you have more than three uh, dimensions, you have this <laughs> issue where something becomes super opaque to anybody. But TC is a way to, to map it to a lower dimensional space. So you can see it's really, really rich relationships between data. And while that in itself is not, you know, a beautiful expression of data, I do think it's a really cool method that people should check out. Um, it's definitely maybe appreciate that, that there are these strong relationships in higher dimensional data that I would definitely would not have seen otherwise. There's just no way to visualize it. So that's really cool. That reminds me of a couple of different things. One from uh, my linear algebra professor, probably uh, is the one that probably introduced this to me. Whereas, you know, when we learn geometry or even algebra, um, and we want to find the distance between two points, we could very easily take the square root of the sum of the squares and it gives us the distance. And we now know that that applies to an nth number of dimensions, which is really cool. Um, and I know it's probably super relevant within um, definitions of distance within machine learning, within algorithms. No, absolutely. I mean, the distance function is foundational to, to all clustering problems, to most NLP problems. Um, so literally a, a lot of modeling is just creating these uh, these distances between points in super high dimensional space. So that's that's exactly what most of it is. Right, and I'll just point to one other example because uh, I, I just feel compelled to, um, is our non-dimensionless groupings and non-dimensional parameters in our chemical engineering studies. Don't know how often it comes up in other other relations, but when we talk, when we look at, you know, designing a heat exchanger, we have 17 different parameters to think about whether it's tube sizes, whether it's material efficiency, whether it's conductivity of your material, we will say, okay, these look like a nice group of, of uh, numbers that at the, at, you know, we'll guess for now if they work well together and we'll plot it and we'll see what kind of relationship it gives us. And it turns out that works quite well. <laughs> so, to, so to anyone, you know, currently studying or remembers their uh, heat exchanger design days, um, those dimensionless numbers really go a long way. I definitely don't remember that, but very cool. <laughs> <laughs> I want to take a step back from your, let's say, day to day as a machine learning engineer and more about other experiences that maybe put you where you are today from the perspective of hackathons, because I know you were quite a quite, quite a common presence um, at some of those in college. Do you, can, can you attest to any one of them that you remember the best or your best or worst performance? <laughs> Oh, I mean, yeah, there was uh, many okay, many bad, but uh, uh, there, there was one I went to that was, um, it was a collaboration with uh, the fashion school at Kent State. And that was pretty fun because we got to work with students who were uh, doing something creative, which was cool. And I will say that I was definitely carried by my partners every time I went who um, were making these amazing dresses and I was just sticking some very <laughs> rudimentary technology into it. And, and you know, and it was, since it was a fashion school, I think they probably uh, got major points for making it look very, very nice. But um, I had a great time there, met some people doing non-tech things and it was, it was good to good to chat, good to collaborate and everything. So I had, I think I had a particularly fun time doing that. So, so yeah, that's, that's really cool to see. I'm curious what else kind of motivates you or gives you the energy on your day-to-day -day basis. Um, I know you're still getting comfortable finding your steady state with your job now, but what else can you point to that, you know, wakes you up in the morning or really something that you look forward to every day? I guess there's just, you know, the, the, the small day-to-day -day things that are, that are great. Like if I don't 
exercise, I cannot function. So, so I will say that that keeps me alive. Um, I've, I've been rock climbing and bike riding. So, so that, that that's been my main outlet to uh, you know mm -hmm. get through the day. Uh, and and also, it, it is really nice being at a place. I feel like the ceiling is really, really just infinite. Um, like this is a company that has some some really amazing engineers. I think I'd be lucky if I worked like my entire life as hard as I could to be even close to them. Um, and I think that that's like a mm. really good motivator um, because I, I just know that like the, the, the work will expand to my confidence. Right. At, 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 least I, at least I think so. Again, still, <laughs> still brand new, but that, that's, that's how I'm trying to optimistically view it. I will say that that's actually very motivational um, in a way that, just in a pretty novel way at this job specifically. Um, so that, that's been very motivational the last couple of weeks. Just, just being like, wow, there's amazing people here. I have a lot of ground to make up, but right. it's in a good way, not 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 in a non toxic <laughs> way. I, I mean, we're all learning, we're all getting better. But yeah, so that, that that's been that's been interesting. And then long term, that that's that's short term. And then long term, there's I'm currently my world expanded a little bit. Um, I'm, I moved to a new city, started a new job. I'm just I'm I'm no longer I'm not bound by my mortal coil. I, I I'm free to roam the universe. Um, but, um, I'm just trying to get excited about the future for the first time in a while and how um, maybe I can channel some of this energy and, and hopefully at some point start to give back because um, I've been given a lot in life. I'm still in my cocooning phase. I feel like I still need to be <laughs> selfish and focus on myself, but I'm, I'm, I'm starting to visualize that that crossover point where I have to start giving back as much as I can. Um, so that's what I'm also starting to get excited about. Cool. And I feel that teaching piece and collaboration piece is something that you really enjoy. Do you see yourself even teaching in the future? Maybe not a full-time professorship, let's say, but as a, let's say, STEM mentor for any of these kind of collaboration or collaborative programs? So, so I will say I am arrogant enough to believe I'd be a good <laughs> teacher, <laughs> um, which is something that, that, that I know is, uh, is obviously um, what comes with time is how hard that job actually is. I have a couple of friends who became teachers and talking to them, some of the smartest people I know, realizing how difficult yeah. teaching someone really is. <laughs> uh, I mean, I would ideally love to do that. I, I, I do have some some ideas that, that I'm working on with a couple of friends, um, something in the meantime. I'm hoping to build some kind of educational something over the next mm -hmm. couple of years once I'm settled. I do think that specifically in the world of computer science, me not coming from that background, not knowing I grew up who did it, and starting so late in the game, um, and not even majoring in it. I, I do think that my little meandering path of projects and getting excited about it is something that could be helpful to somebody. So I, I, I would love to show other people maybe how to do that at some point. Um, so that, that is one of my little mental side projects. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, nothing tangible yet. But yeah, maybe someday I could bring you on my That's my right. project. <laughs> and I could teach you some Hell yeah. stuff. One series I really like is by Wired a professional explains a concept that they've learned essentially their whole life at five different levels. So I don't know if you're familiar with it. They mm -hmm. explain it to a preschool, like a five-year-old, then they explain it to a teenager and then working their way up basically to a peer where those first couple levels, it's kind of explaining and then, you know, asking those what and how mm -hmm. questions. And then at the last stage is like, why are we doing this? Like, why are we pivoting this way? Why are we collecting this data? So I think if you can answer mm -hmm. those five or if you can give those five different levels of explanation that will help you get to your goal do you want me to try to do that right now yeah, <laughs> so that? In, let's say in your own <laughs> words for me as someone that understands what machine learning is 
I'm definitely not a peer to you by any means, but how would you explain machine learning to me or what does it mean to you at this point in your life? So I guess that's two questions. <laughs> no, it's good. I, I think you're definitely selling yourself short though. I mean, you clearly do analytic stuff. So, I mean, it's it, the, the distance between that and, and machine learning in general is not that far. It's just the technology is getting more specific. So there's a couple of things you <laughs> have to read about for a little bit. I'm sure you'd be ready to go, but, um, uh, but yeah, so, so I, I guess I'll start with for me, right? Um, because the Google answer is definitely probably the most um, correct answer, but, but I guess for, for me, I kind of view it as one of the most fun applied math problems in industry right now, that if you have a more analytical mind and, and you're looking to do something that is still growing and is, is established enough that you can still make money and have a career, but also there's still so much room for growth that, that that's kind of what it is for me because it, it, once you get into it, you realize that mm -hmm. so many of the solutions that are out there right now are so not elegant. Um, we have things that work incredibly well, but when you dig into the things underlying it, you're both <laughs> amazed and then occasionally you're like, is, is that really it? Uh, like so, some of the some of the underlying models uh, up until a couple of years ago, it's like that. A couple of, a couple of years ago, things got pretty pretty bananas, but <laughs> but um, up to a couple of years ago, it, it was surprisingly easy to digest. Um, and I think when you get that little taste for what, for how simple some of those models are, it can make you realize that, that you might be able to actually innovate in, in this field, which is pretty fun. And even if you don't innovate, there's still so many problems that are not currently addressed that could use the technology that already exists. So if you're somebody who's looking to do anything on that spectrum, I think it's just a really fun place to be. Um, if you like right. software, obviously in hardware, there's a bunch of other Approaching the problems with, like, with semiconductors yeah. and, <laughs> and uh, you know, exactly what I was going to say. Yes, yes. But on, on the software side, unless you want to go into like crypto, I, I, I think this is probably one, one of the more fun, engaging and place and great places to grow in. Yeah, that's really cool. Thank you for, I guess, explaining to me in that way. It makes perfect sense uh, in terms of where we are today and where we're going. One really funny example that I regularly think about and I see in the you know YouTube comment section often is speed running a lot of the games that we grew up playing for hours and hours and hours so those you know first generation pokemon games um red and blue yeah. where you know we'd get stuck and it would take us hours days again we were seven you know barely uh going through grade school at that point um you and i but you see people now finishing and exposing what's under under the engine or sorry what's under the hood and it's like, how is yeah. this functional? How is this game functional at all? How do they sell so many yeah. copies without it blowing up immediately in their face? <laughs> I love Nintendo though, so. No, absolutely. I, I watched the guys run all of Super Mario Sunshine. It was the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It just like was a release for all that childhood angst right. and falling off cliffs <laughs> all the time and stuff, so. <laughs> yeah, so definitely like figuring out, uh, you know, the solutions that work now, how they worked back then especially with the limited technology or not limited per se, but um, fewer resources that were available, whether they were hardware or whether they were just like the theory behind it all, right? Yeah, yeah. And and because of that, that's the reason machine learning is so technically young, even though it's uh, some of the underlying technologies have existed since the 60s and, and then again in the 80s. But the reality is that up until a couple of years ago, we didn't have any of the computing power necessary to do some of the crazy things that's happening now which is why there's still so much room to grow. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So to close out, I really want to thank you for your time today. I think we had a great session. 
Um, I wanna thank you again for your thought process as you tell us and work through these early stages of your career. I really appreciate it, I had a ton of fun. So thanks to all our listeners, please visit our website at nftpcast.com. Complete the Google form on our website to stay in touch, submit future topics and industries for us to cover, recover and discover. Tune in for the next episode and see you next time. Hi, this is Tyler, the sound engineer with the Networking for the People podcast. If you like today's episode and the music we played, check us out on Facebook and Instagram and at nftpcast.com. Thanks so much and have a great day.